This is Publishing Talks, a podcast about books in the publishing industry. I'm David Wilk, your host. Today, I'm talking to Mark Hurst from Creative Good. How are you, Mark? Doing just fine, David. Thanks for having me on. Thanks for doing this. And uh, I really, I like your uh, audio setup. It's very, very clear. Um, Thank unlike, you. Unlike some of the phone calls that I have these days that don't work very well. Uh, well as a fellow interviewer, I, I know just what that feels like. <laughs> and of course, as soon as I started talking to you, one of my neighbors started mowing his lawn, which he does pretty much every day. Uh, so I can hear it. I don't know whether everybody else can. No, um, no, you're, you you sound fine. I don't hear any lawnmowers in the back. Oh, uh, that's really good. Well, we've been in touch for a while. I don't know how long. I re- have a great deal of respect for what you do and for the writing that you do. And, you know, unlike most of the people I talk to, you're not really in the book business in the way that, uh, you know, you're not a professional publisher or editor. Uh, I know you've written two books and I gather, and I'm not sure about the second book because I couldn't find it anywhere, but your first book looks like it was published by Good Experience, which is you. That's right. Um, The first book was called Bit Literacy, and I self-published it back in 2007, and it did well enough, just organic, with organic sales, no publisher behind it, that it got some interest from publishers, and it was later published, uh, of all places, first in Russia and then in China. (laughs) And there was some initial interest from an American publisher, but it it never quite worked out. So my first book is only published internationally. (laughs) But so it is, but I've found it listed in America. I mean, it's, it must still be available. Oh, it's it's available. It's just, it was never picked up by officially by a publisher, but yes, it's, it's available here. But of course, you know, in the intervening 15 years, since you published that book, the whole notion of publishing has altered. And so when you say it's not published, in fact, it actually is published. It's just not published by a large uh, commercial entity, but it's just as available in terms of backlist, you know, what we used to call the long tail for a while, you know, it's still there. So you're, you're connected to the publishing industry, but I also, I wanted to talk to you partly because a lot of the work that you've done in criticism of big tech you know initially i know maybe you should talk a little bit about your history so that we we have some context for people who may not know who you are and know your work uh so we should probably go back to your beginnings in technology um and you know briefly talk about that and then kind of get to where you are today because you've been doing this for a long time yeah yeah and and thanks again for having me on i'm I'm an admirer of your work as well david and so it's it's an honor to speak with you here um as for my background i uh graduated from m i t in the mid nineties with a, a a strong interest in the world wide web which was just getting started i worked uh for about a year and a half with a guy named Seth Godin who you may have heard I think, of. I think we are, most of us have heard of him. <laughs> and uh, we worked on uh, uh, an early internet startup that he had founded called Yoyodyne. And then in 1997, I founded my company, Creative Good, which I'm still running with an idea that I would advise companies on how to make their 
websites and digital products easier to use. And that consulting firm grew fairly well uh, for a number of years. And during those years from 97 through uh, the mid-2010s, I guess, I, I came out with two books, as you brought, uh, brought up earlier. One was Bit Literacy on how to manage email and other information sources. And the other was called Customers Included, which is available. There's a second edition, and you can find it at customersincluded.com. And that was about, again, uh, giving teams, product teams, ideas on how to include their users in their conceptions of their digital products, which which rarely happens, by the way. But well, that's a whole right. other conversation. Oh, no, that is a com- But I think that's an important conversation. It actually relates to one of my long-standing concerns about publishing that publishing is product centric not customer centric and there's a good reason for a creative industry to feel that that's all right you know that that's important we don't want to um as the word you is often used pander to some notion of what customers want when we're dealing with creativity you want the creative to drive your business and that would make you product centric but it's also a failure to understand the market if you don't do any work in trying to address customer needs. And I mean, I so I think there there's a balance. I don't think that it's possible to be one or the other or even desirable. But I think in publishing, like as in many other industries, we get all wrapped up in our own business. You know, this is how we've always done it. This is what we do. Um, an author provides us with a manuscript. We choose the one that we like. And on what basis? Who knows? It's the, you know, it's our accumulated wisdom or it's the fancy of the day, the fad, the moment, um, what we perceive as a reality rather than reality itself. So it does relate. And I think that it's an important, you know, what you did with that book was really important because you remind people that um, product and de- product development doesn't simply exist in a, you know, inside your head. That's right. I agree with everything you just said. Having had some limited experience with the publishing industry, there's a lot of ways that publishers could improve with some very basic steps of, of listening to their customers, but you said something very important is in, in that it's not all one or the other. In other words, we can't be completely customer centric. I've never liked the phrase customer centricity beyond the torturing of the English language. The concept behind that term is just false. We can't be complete. You know what, what customers would like to get all of the products for free. We can't be customer centric right. in that way. There has to be a balance. But all I'm arguing in customers included is that when we're building teams, products, services, whatever we're doing, a sur- any, any kind of um, innovation or, or business, just don't ignore the customer completely. Right. If we can just get above that bar, we're going to be so much further advanced from where we are now, which is usually companies in all industries tend to ignore their customers completely. And um, there are great advances available to the rare team that decides to spend a little bit of time understanding what actually matters to their customers. And of course, we all have experienced that directly ourselves as 
users of interfaces which were never made with any recognition of the user. <laughs> yeah, it's and, just frustrating to be using a, a site or an app or something, and it does something really boneheaded. And if you know a little bit about the technology under the hood, you can often discern that fixing that problem would take a programmer about five minutes. It's one right. line of code. But they simply never observed anyone using the product, and so, or, or they don't care, um, and we're left with those problems. But there, there's one other dimension to this that I wanted to bring up that brings my story fully up to, because that was as of the, the mid-2010s. I came out with the second edition of Customers Included. But around that time, I started to notice that in the tech industry, the problem wasn't simply that companies were making the boneheaded mistake of ignoring their customers. In fact, in a way, a lot of the biggest tech companies were paying very close attention to their customers in order to do something that exploited their customers by making addictive interfaces, deceptive products, um, sharing personal data for profit without users' knowledge or consent, we can tick off all of the bad behaviors of these big tech companies. But to me, that w I had been online, you know, since, since the beginning of the web. And this I could feel in my bones was a sea change that companies were beginning, the most powerful companies in tech and, and therefore <laughs> the world were beginning to turn on their users to adopt a stance of active and intentional exploitation. Yep. And that's when my consulting business <laughs> started to really uh, suffer because I refused, and I still refuse, to advise anyone on how to do that. I, I mean, I, I know how one would go about doing that. And there are, there are, there are now classes and books on this topic. Um, but I refuse. And instead, what I did was I started writing and speaking out both in my creative good newsletter and in a, in a volunteer uh, radio show on WFMU called Tectonic. And now for about five years, I've been writing and speaking every week to try to raise awareness about what the tech industry is doing, because it's different from how they used to act. And it's, Beyond being a completely unethical um, set of values, it's 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 urgent and it's deeply dangerous to all of us what the tech industry is doing with its power and influence. And um, even if uh, all I'm able to do is raise awareness <laughs> with a few people here or there, at least I have to try because it would be completely irresponsible of me with uh, of me with my background, not to speak out in this way. Well, and I, that was one of the reasons why I wanted to talk to you on this program is be, partly because I think it, it's, it is urgent. I think it's related to the political circumstance. Um, I think, you know, there are a lot of factors that are probably beyond my ability to understand or grapple with, but I think a lot of it has to do with scale and uh, power. Um, you know, we see, we, we've always seen in, at least in my business experience, when a business gets large enough, 
to exert power over its suppliers, for example, because I've been on the, you know, on the publishing side where you sell books to people. And when a company gets really big, they change their behavior. Um, they have the ability to make decisions or to, to extract value from the business on both sides, on the supplier side and on the sell side. And they will do that. And so um, I think it has to do, a lot of this has to do with scale and uh, the power that comes with scale, which helps to obviate also ethical behavior because you're at a scale where humans are not individually exerting very much power anymore. They're all part of a larger machine where they don't necessarily see their moral um, center at work. Um, you you did, but not everybody does. Um, and I don't want to compare, uh, you know, uh, well, I don't want to make go too far with that, but there are comparisons to how people operate in a in an authoritarian system where they it does rely on people giving up their own um, uh, moral power uh, in order to either su survive or thrive in the system that they are part of. And I, you could probably see that in the corporations today, um, which if they were studied, uh, you know, kind of anthropologically, what what is going on? What are the power relationships? Where are the ethical behavior lines drawn? Um, I don't think that I'm not even sure they see it uh, the way you do. Well, there's some people, I think, who are willfully blind because the cognitive dissonance would be too great. You know, I'm mm -hmm. here. I'm thinking of the people who people inside these big tech firms who are really responsible are the ones at the top. Um. And it's important. It's really important that we frame this in terms of power, uh, because there are employees, or rather, more often contractors, at the big tech firms who I completely support and empathize with. These are the bus drivers, the food service workers, the janitors, um, the commercial content moderators. Uh, these are people who are routinely. Um, I won't say mistreated necessarily. I'm sure they are in some cases, but just the the division of power in these companies l leaves them with very little leverage. And that's why right. I was so heartened and excited to hear about the new Amazon union on Staten mm -hmm. Island. Yep. Um, not because I'm excited about Amazon's prospects. I mean, <laughs> I, I, I but, but more that the unionizing employees in the fulfillment center are going to have a little bit of leverage. Good for them. I, I support that. On the, on the other side of the org chart, though, on the very top, these are people who, a very small group of people who are making big decisions that, that impact literally billions of people every day. I mean, if, if, if you look at the, the daily users of a, of a service like Facebook or Instagram, th this, this affects billions of human beings. And the decisions that are typically made at the top of the big tech companies are, are made with a view um, of growth at any cost. That's the one value of all of these companies. And in the extreme examples of the effects of that kind of decision-making, you see what happened a few years ago in Myanmar in which the United Nations documented Facebook's complicity in genocide. 
and, and this is this is not me hyperbolizing. Oh, it's genocide. No, it's a it's a it's a well documented connection between Facebook's business model and the, the genocide on the ground in that in that country. We could go through other countries where Facebook has had deadly effect and um, other really in in my estimation criminal outcomes from uh, several of the big tech companies in their in in, in many of their activities so th- these are um, massively harmful effects that these companies can have not exclusively but they can and have had in the past now let's bring it back to the mindset of the people at the top of those organizations they finish a day at Facebook or Google or Amazon or Microsoft. Uh, even Apple, in some cases, is having harmful effects on the economy. What do they do when they get back home to their family? Do you think they, they sit and reflect on their complicity in essentially criminal outcomes of their employer? No. They, they go and, you know, they, they shoot baskets with their kids in the backyard. They enjoy life. They compartmentalize that. Were they to really reflect and become aware of the impact of their team's decisions on the world, they would not be able to remain employed. I'm quite confident if they really reflected on what they were doing. So there's this compartmentalization of um, what, what I do and how I relate to my family and my team members locally within the company and try not to think too much about what happens outside the company and that's um that results in you said the word authoritarian um i i i won't disagree with that in that direction let me throw another possible word out there feudalism Mm -hmm. there's a guy named joel kotkin who wrote a book i think two years ago called the age of neo-feudalism i had him on the show on tectonic and he makes a very persuasive case and he's not the only one arguing this that the economy that we in the U.S. are uh, are are speeding towards is one of feudalism, in which you have a very very small set of essentially nobility. These are the tech billionaires, the uh, the Elon Musks and so on, and their partner investors, the heads of venture capital firms on Sand Hill Road, and then that's a that's a tiny class of nobility that hold much of the power and influence of money. And then below that, you have what he calls the clerisy. These are essentially the vassals. Right. And what we used to call white-collar workers, the lawyers, the doctors, the uh, the programmers, you know, the, the, the really senior coders who are coming up with, uh, who are executing the engineers who are creating these platforms. These are not the billionaires. These are the vassals who work for the billionaires. And in order to remain in good standing in the vassal class, you have to never criticize the power structure or else you'll be cast into the outer darkness. <laughs> so you won't hear any dissent from that class. You won't, you won't hear any uh, apostasy from that class. And then below the nobility and the vassals, vassals are still, the clerisy is still pretty small group. Then you have the broad, uh, the broad class of peasants below that. Uh, and of course I'm using peasant in the, in the feudal sense, we would have to come up with a different term for where we're headed in 2022, but 
that's the group that without sharing in much of the benefits of the upper two classes, they're free to criticize and be apostates and unionize um, to try to gain back some of their power. And that's just simply, David, a very different economic system from the one that I've lived in my life up to this point. I would guess you would say the same in your life, but uh, it's where we're headed. And, and, and I think we need to get ready for change to, to observe this, this new mindset from the people in power where they have a very good reason not to speak out against the harms of the system that they're a part of. Well, because right there is there's no they have no reason to speak out against it because it's a system that serves their needs. And there's a huge cost. It's not like in you know in in the in the, in the good old days when you could kind of grouse about this or that and still be a in good standing in in your neighborhood or your community group. Now it's just very locked down tight. If you speak out as a, and this, I've seen this, there, there was a, and I'm sorry I interrupted you, but I just want to share this one example. I can't remember his name, but a few years ago, there was a VC, not one of the top VCs, but you know, like a mid-level venture capitalist who went onto Twitter and made the, (laughs) made the bad mistake of slightly criticizing the system of startup funding because he said, and I'm not quoting here, but it was essentially, I'm a VC at whatever firm, and all we get are these apps that are so dumb, they don't actually improve the world at all. They're just money grabs. And can't we get some startup founders who actually have some decent ideas? Oh, the blowback. It was immediate and it was intense. And people were telling this guy, you're never going to get another pitch again. In, in, In other words, your career is over unless you turn this around right now. And within a day or two, he was back on Twitter groveling, issuing abject apologies. I'm sorry. I, I don't know what I, what came over me. I would never. <laughs> and just barely by groveling, I think he was able to retain his position. Dissent, the, the, the nobility will brook no dissent. So do you think, I, one of the things I know that you've started is called good reports where you've um, listed a number of alternatives that people who are interested in um, let's say not participating in the feudal tech system uh, in the fullest form can trial you know can use alternatives Um, and you've you know I think what we all kind of fear about the environment that we're in is that there's no way to uh, extract ourselves from it without becoming what you would call a luddite, um, you know, or or where you give up some so much of the. I, I'm not going to say convenience, but maybe to some extent it is the the features of tech that you find useful in your daily life. You have to give up some of that in order to maintain your value system. It does apply to people buying books, and that's the experience that I'm most familiar with. Um, you know, with Amazon and its uh, alternatives, which are few and far between in terms of um, actual uh, ability to deliver the same, you know, a similar level of service, really difficult to do. Um, so, 
but we promote those and they're valuable. Um, you know, like bookshop.org and Indeed Bound uh, that you've recommended in in good reports. Uh, but you know, it, at least in the book business, there's still a fairly small uh, percentage of sales. And I imagine that's true across the board in every other category um, of service that you've connected to in, in terms of good reports. Um, so we don't want to feel hopeless and we don't want to feel helpless. Um, so aside from doing those things that we can do, it's sort of like eating organic food from a local farmer instead of buying food that's raised in New Zealand or Chile and shipped in with, you know, deleterious effects or buying beef that comes from, you know, cutting down the trees in the Amazon. Um, those are important things to do. I think I do believe that individuals can exert power, but I also think that putting it all on the individual in order, you know, to make us responsible for our choices obviates the political and um, kind of the context of power um, that we're facing. That is to say, we have to find a way of organizing to oppose um, what we don't think is right and find ways to make change on a large scale. And that's not going to happen if I just buy my books from my local bookstore. Um, I have to do something more than that. Um, so I'm interested in you know whatever you can propose uh, in that direction, because I, I think people are looking for some form of direction, some guidance, some help, and how can we do things that will actually make a difference? Yeah, and I agree with what you said that um, individuals can make a difference, but that's not sufficient to solve the problems that that we're facing. Um, my goal with starting good reports and people can see it at goodreports.com. It's a very simple site. It just says alternatives for email. I think it says best email service, best search engine, best. Right. And it just goes to VPN all the way down the line of all the different kinds of tools people can use. My goal there was to have a more hopeful resource <laughs> for people so that, because so much of my, radio and newsletters is is negative it's critical <laughs> saying what's wrong um i don't you can't just be 100% critical we we need something that says here are some good news some good options for us so that's the idea there and for anyone who's interested to just try one of them i mean you, you don't have to get off of all the services and have i don't even know if that's possible but we can say What's one step that I can do? This is much like, as you said, um, trying to support local organic farmers or make, maybe taking steps to reduce our carbon footprint in some way. Um, these, are, these are global problems that we can act locally on and, and have some agency in. However, changing your email provider and your search provider are not... Even even if everyone who listens to this podcast in in your broad audience and even mine as well, if both of our combined audiences, David, immediately switched off of Gmail to other email providers, it wouldn't G, Google wouldn't wouldn't even notice. It's, it wouldn't even be a, a blip. So we need a communal response, a collective response, to complement our individual agency. And collective response, you know, as the old proverb says, if, if you want to go 
fast, go alone. If you want to go far, go together. Mm. And of course, what's not added there is if you want to go far, but maybe very slowly, <laughs> go together. <laughs> yeah, right. A collective response will take you much further, but it takes long, longer. It takes more time. And a collective response can take in any number of different forms. It can be bottom up, you know, grassroots organizing on the local level to build momentum uh, uh, across a region and across a country. It can be working on voting in better candidates who in uh, uh, in the next election cycle or two may begin to plant some seeds that eventually will turn into better legislation. Um, it can be supporting unionization within Amazon fulfillment centers. It can be, uh, I don't know, there, there's any number of community groups or or political action groups that people can get involved with to band together with other people to try to get us better alternatives and better legislation. Um, and there is good news on that front. I've been watching, there's a, there's a Democratic representative from Rhode Island whose name is David Cicilline. I've been watching him for years. He just on, on the big tech antitrust front, He's been a leader and has been working year after year to try to get legislation uh, up for vote and passed to rein in the big tech giants. Well, it's, I mean, he's been working on it for years. He's been making some progress and it's still, it's still not done. You know, even, and I point out, point him out as the best case and he's been working at it for years. He's had some successes and it's still not done. The big tech giants are still unchecked in their power. So this probably, David, much like our uh, trying to address climate change and our, uh, our food system and many of our big wicked problems that we're facing as a species right now, these problems and their solutions, David, are going to outlast you and I. Oh, but, I agree with that. But, but I do think that there is, as you say, there is hope. One thing I think is true, and that is that most of the pol politicians who are in power are too old. They come from a period when tech was not, they're not natives, you know, they're not digital natives. And it, it's noticeable that they, you know, a lot of them don't understand um, what tech has, they don't really understand it in the first place. So they're not going to understand what's wrong. Um, they, and there is, you know, the reality of money and politics. I think if there is anything to organize around, it's um, getting rid of Citizens United so that money is not the driver in all political action. Um, and that because that gives inordinate power to those who have the most amount of money. It's a bizarre, just a bizarre idea. And of course, reflects the inequities in our system. Um, I think the you know, you've brought up, you know, your, your, um, the notion of the feudal, the feudalism is actually a really good, um, rubric, I think for understanding, even though it may not necessarily be an exact, uh, equivalent to, you know, 1200 AD, there are the power relationships that, that illuminates, I think are really important that it's, you know, it is a complicated, uh, environment, but, it is also true that we have more power uh, in this in our modern era than peasants did in 1100 or 1200 AD. So, um, and we have a little bit more history of 
um, we have we we're we're literate. You know, we we peasants didn't read, um, and we can. So that you know that that gives us hope because ideas and change does come from words and ideas. That's a very optimistic way of putting it. To say, <laughs> if we compare our political situation in 2022 uh, with the situation in 1200, hey, look, we're literate. We can read. <laughs> <laughs> That's something. <laughs> I, that is something. I would have hoped for a little more progress in 800 years. Um, but I, I mean, one could argue that we may be able to read, but what is it? that most of us are reading. I mean, I live in Manhattan and I was just walking around. Um, I had a meeting in Soho today, taking the subway down, walking around Soho and coming back up. I can't tell you how many people of all ages I saw walking around with their face buried in a screen. And if you happen to peer at the screen, which you can because they're not aware of anyone around them, so you can glance at what they're looking at, most of it is either uh, some sort of TV or movie or video content, or it's a dressed up slot machine, one of these addictive mobile phone games. You don't see people walking around, you know, reading Montaigne. Um, these are these are not these phones are not motivating people towards self improvement. So imagine when the peasants in 1200, well, it wasn't in 1200, but when, um, let's say, the Gutenberg Bible, uh, around the time of, of Gutenberg, there was a sense of liberation and a possibility of, of self-improvement. And now, in the last 20 years, we've built out this global communications network and then service almost every person on the planet with these incredibly complicated handheld computers, the power of which would have been totally inconceivable even 50 years ago that this would be available in, a, in portable form and, and generally available to the, to the populace. Imagine the kinds of advances that surely people are going to pursue to improve our democracy, improve our educational system, just improve everyone's awareness of the natural world and ethical teachings and everything else. No, we've built the system for the enrichment of a tiny group of incredibly powerful oligarchs in the tech industry, and people are walking around playing slot machines, the stupidest possible, the really Really, David, the stupidest possible use of this global communication system deliver on these smartphones. The most wasteful, harmful, idiotic possible use that we could have (laughs) instrumented this entire global system for is to deliver everybody a stupid slot machine. And yet people are walking around in my city, which used to be known as as a book reader's city. And now you barely see anyone reading. You see people walking around playing with these stupid slot machines and watching these silly videos because they're addicted. I don't even mean to condemn the individuals. There's a system that is, that is like a gravitational pull that is pulling people's attention into these uh, addictive feedback loops where they can't easily extract themselves because it continues to make the oligarchs that much more powerful. What a waste. 
So in my in my pessimistic moments, David, and I guess I'm having one right now, I sometimes wonder how much we actually have advanced past the peasants of 1200. Well, unfortunately, I think there are elements of truth in what you say, and it is, you know, the irony is not lost on us, um, but it, it makes you wonder whether there is such a thing as progress. Um, you know, maybe human beings are uh, on some level doomed because we're not able to um, bring ourselves to a better position with tools that are readily available to us. And actually, as you were calling it a smartphone and talking about what people are using it using it for, of course, it makes you realize that it's really not a smartphone. It's a dumb phone. Um, it's the dumbing down. But I, I don't know whether actually it has ever been uh, I don't know whether there was ever a golden age, you know, of of when things were better. I don't know. I, I'm not sure that, you know, I remember years ago, the lament in the publishing industry was that not enough people were reading books. And I think it's, you know, I don't, I'm not sure that's changed in the last 50 years. We have more people, more people are reading. I'm just not, you know, it's just not clear whether that's having an effect of advancing the population or advancing the notion of civilization. We always had that idea that civilization is moving ahead, that people are becoming better. Um, I'm not sure that that's true. Well, here's, I love the, I love the question of, you know, are we moving forward, backwards or staying the same? You know, maybe, maybe it's like, maybe it's always been like this. I think that um, one way to look at this is to uh, have a controlled environment and view that controlled environment over the decades. And what I would propose, uh, given that it's my home turf, (laughs) is the environment of New York City. Now, there's a book that came out about six or seven years ago uh, called Vanishing New York by Jeremiah Moss. This is a fabulous book. book. You know the book. I had Jeremiah on Tectonic. We had a great conversation. And his argument, which is very persuasive, and I agree with it, is that the experience of living and and being in New York City has degraded over the last uh, three decades. And the reasons for that, there's, there's many, of course, all interleaved. Part of it is city policy, attracting big money from foreign billionaires. Some of it is things that happen outside the control of the city, like the arrival of smartphones. There's rising inequality in the general economy that is reflected in the population here in New York. There's a bunch of issues that all combine to have this effect. But one example that Jeremiah Moss gives is the same one that I just talked about from Soho, which is his experience walking on the streets, on the sidewalks of New York City, is just markedly different from what it used to be. Because half the people you walk by aren't aware of him or the buildings or the sky or the fact that they're in New York at all. They're just zombies walking around looking at whatever Silicon Valley wants them to look at. That, David, is different. New York City has never had that problem. It's had plenty of problems over its history, but it's never had the problem of New Yorkers not knowing where they were on a grand scale. And that's happening. 
And if you, if you just look at New York as a microcosm of society, which it may or may not be fair generally, but just in this case, and you, just to hold up this question, are we moving forward or backwards? One answer I would give is that just looking around on the street looks like we have regressed in, in some fundamental way. And the, the life, the, the diversity of experience, the level of real authentic engagement with the city and the world mm-hmm. has objectively degraded, has declined since the arrival of the smartphone. And I think that what you're saying about, you know, the, the publishing industry has always had similar complaints. People aren't reading enough. You know, there's not enough attention paid to literary fiction or whatever. I could agree with that. There's a lot of trends that we're seeing right now that are they're really not new. You know, concentrated power causing harmful outcomes. That's not that's not a new uh, thought in human history. Um, the American companies with unchecked power acting like bullying monopolies and and stifling innovation. Go back and look at the railroads, Standard Oil. I mean, this is an old problem, but. There is something new under the sun within this framework of these patterns repeating. What's new here is that Silicon Valley has floored the gas pedal. It is accelerating us, is accelerating all of these trends to a degree that we've never seen before. And that's what concerns me. It's not sustainable. And then one could say, well, if they're taking these these entrenched problems and just accelerating their impact. What are you doing, Mark, as one person trying to stand up against this, against these multi-trillion dollar companies as a, as a, as a cabal in big tech, multi-trillion dollar capitalization. What's one guy going to do? One, one person over there. It's not only me, these individuals here and there. And my answer is what else am I supposed to do? I mean, what are we going to do if we don't speak out? What are we going to do? We're just going to sit here and accept it? I mean, it may be a losing battle, but the lower my chances are, the more interested I am in continuing because the more important it is. Yeah, I think that I think that's the right response. I think that's the right response to pessimism overall. The worse it gets, the harder the problem is, the more you have to struggle because that's all you can do. And that, I think I think we should leave it there because you know I don't want to um, over over you know kind of overdraw the situation, but I think this is a perfect um, uh, conversation about where we need to be. I think that give it's sort of out of the pessimism, the darkest hole comes the the only answer possible is the optimism of struggle that you have to keep on going and that that's all that we are able to do. So for that, I want to thank you because I think that you've really raised this issue in a powerful way. And that's all that one person can do. Um, you know, I, and I appreciate your continuing to, to struggle, continuing to draw the line. Um, and I think it, cause it's important. And it, I do believe in the power of the individual in a mass society. I think you have to do that. Um, we all have to believe that we are more important than zero and we're, we're one, you know, it's zeros and ones. We're one. So thank you for doing that.
David, thanks so much for having me on and, and thanks for all the good work that you're doing. Please keep it up. Thanks. This has been Publishing Talks, a podcast about books and the publishing industry. I've been talking to Mark Hurst from Creative Good and really appreciate your being here. Thanks. Thanks.